introduction. Did we not want to continue warming up? It could be one of those things where it's like we're having fun in a lounge and we're all talking, and then we could like have the music and like make it seem all cool and relaxed. <laughs> sort of a, hub, a hubbub. That's wonderful. Yeah, like that. All right. Uh, so hi there. <laughs> Welcome to the third episode of Sanity Check. We're recording on the evening of Tuesday, January 31st. I'm Ben, and I'm joined tonight by Michael, Andrew, and John. We're going to break down the latest in Trump's America and figure out what we can do and how to stay sane in the process. Today is day 12 of the resistance. So what do you guys want to talk about first? Anyone? Uh, What do we want to talk about first? It might be interesting to talk about the horrific constitutional crisis that our country has been plunged into. What's How funny is, sorry, I have to just go back because I want to be like honest. I want this thing to seem honest. Ben just inter- said a question to us after we had already agreed the order of topics <laughs> that we would enter into. So I think we were all just like, I thought we had settled this, Ben. I was trying to open the list so I could real naturally bring up the first thing. <laughs> well, that was, I yeah. was trying to provide a natural like, segue. Oh, I don't yeah. know. But you yeah. were trying to prompt us to say the thing you had already written down. So in a way, that's a cue or a segue for us to talk about Bannon first, but that's not what we're going to do. Correct. So, so let's get into that constitutional crisis you mentioned. Yeah, so I think that it had really already started last week with the, in particular, the executive orders that Mike John and I had discussed, but it it really got uh, thrust forward this week with the executive order enacting, in essence, a Muslim ban on how, how many countries is it? Six, seven? Seven. Seven. Seven, yeah. Um, notably, no countries where the president has any major business ties. Mm-hmm. Um, or any business ties, I mean, that, that I guess we know of. That we know of. I mean, there's Well, and if you were to make a list of countries where people had come to the United States and committed terrorist attacks... Hmm. You would end up with approximating <laughs> the opposite of the list... Yeah, it would right. be a different batch of places. It would be it would a different be. list. Yeah. Or just generally where there's like a high instance of terrorism in those countries. You'd really have to include um, the United States on that list also. Yeah. Since every, as far as I know, every attack labeled as terrorist in the country since 9-11 has been perpetrated by either a citizen or someone who moved to this country when they were extremely young. Who are, who is essence a citizen <laughs> by that right. by that measure? They're all or citizens, not, yeah. a permanent We're, resident anyway. Yeah, and I don't think any of them were not citizens. Um, I mean, in part, like the in uh, the San Bernardino attack, the wife was a citizen through her marriage to that man who that was is born true. in America. That, she was so she was a recent immigrant. I she was a recent immigrant, yeah. but she was clearly a citizen. I'm kind of with Joe Biden though on the like let's not thinking about 9-11, where I'm like, that's a hell of an exception. That was a pretty big terrorist attack, and none of the people who did that were from the countries in the ban either, even though they mentioned no. September 11 three times when they were introducing the order. Mm-hmm. So let's let's rewind this. When we introduced this as a constitutional crisis, and I think that should be constitutional crisis with a question mark, because I don't think it's clearly a, yet even a constitutional crisis. That's fair. Uh, you, yeah, you know. uh, yeah. I mean, I think so. we might feel about it, and I, may, I don't know. We haven't really talked about it yet, but we should at least consider it something that we have not yet defined as a constitutional crisis. So what exactly happened in the course of events? Because the last time we talked was last Wednesday. I think after Wednesday, I think there was the talk about the wall executive order had come down. 
then, uh, but the big one was what happened on Friday, uh, which obviously we didn't talk about because that's after Wednesday. And what and what was that exactly? But I think we were going into it. But what was the Muslim ban specifically? So Trump signed an executive order, um, theoretically temporarily um, stopping uh, immigration and and visa rights for people from these seven largely Muslim countries. He, this included, because of the, the vague way that it was written, it included people who have American green cards or valid visas. And uh, the Trump team did not speak with the Department of Justice, the Department of State, um, Homeland Security, or pretty much anyone else, uh, or, or even any Republican Congress members, although interestingly, they did use their staff. Well, let's get into that. So, so, that, so before we get into this, so just the, there was the prohibition on the seven countries, which seemed to include both uh, future uh, emigres from those countries and current people with green cards or visas from those countries. Um, who are outside it, the country. Who are outside the country, or I guess in theory is inside the country if they want to go out. Then there was also a part of it that banned any immigration from anyone from Syria indefinitely. And the, all ref, wasn't it all refugees, uh, or yes, was it just Syrian it, refugees? No, all refugees. It, it's, there was so an overall it, re- reduction yeah. in the number of refugees by about 60% in our plan for the upcoming year, from a, about 110,000 that we were planning on accepting worldwide. Um, under the Obama administration, it was reduced down to 50,000. Okay, so it was three parts. It was the, the, uh, a temporary ban for 90 days uh, while and they reevaluate their vetting process for those seven Muslim countries, Muslim-dominant countries. There was the prohibition of any immigration from Syrians indefinitely or people from Syria indefinitely. And there was a reduction in refugees and a statement that no refugees from those seven countries. And that there would be ex- really extreme vetting. Extreme vetting, yes, was, was talked yes. about. So that was the, the, uh, the executive order that came down. And it went into Friday. effect immediately. It went into effect immediately. Okay. Um, there was a 12-hour window, uh, seemingly, where it was very unclear what, who was affecting. Like, the executive order was announced... Um, but it wasn't until Saturday morning that Homeland Security said that it would affect green card holders. There was like reports of green card holders being affected and being stopped uh, from both entering the country or getting onto planes to the country. And a lot of those reports were in the 12-hour window said like that, that's an exaggeration, that's a fabrication. Um, and then Homeland Security announced that it did affect green card holders and then suddenly the tune changed. And it, the, there were two immediate effects of this policy – which is that individuals coming into the country who are in any way related uh, or have passports related to those seven banned country were not allowed into the country either directly while landing in the airports in America or from the airports or destinations that they were traveling from. And then there was an immediate outrage and rapid response uh, and protest against the executive order. Those two things happened um, you know, there was obviously a slight pretty, delay for the protest, but they happened but pre- fairly pretty instantaneously. Yeah, pretty pretty much at the same time. It was awesome. Um, well, yeah. That's... What part was awesome? The immediate resistance. Everybody going to JFK. 
Um, and, and part of the confusion, um, as we alluded to earlier, was literally that the White House did not coordinate this in any way with the federal agencies who are responsible for carrying out this order. Um, in fact, which, they managed, like, in the hours leading up to it, to fire everybody in the State Department who might have been able to look at it and say, you know, point out all the obvious holes in it, all the all the operational flaws and getting it done in such a hasty well, dramatic it's, fashion. It's certainly true, though, if they weren't going to consult state or anyone else anyway, it almost doesn't matter. Yeah, so, so I think, I would actually say, Ben, you're exaggerating that there was no coordination. I think that there's been evidence of some level of coordination because the executive order itself was sort of leaked a little bit. There was suspicion that this, they were moving in this direction because I attended a rally Thursday night when it had been rumored to be about, and I attended a rally in Washington Square Park uh, in New York City. Um, and somebody in the Attorney General's did... office did seem to sign off on it. Not the uh, office. Not Yates, of, um, but somebody did. No, it was claim. the office of. Uh, it's in the DOJ. It's. Um, I can't remember. The office the, of legal counsel. The, thank you, Mike. Yeah. Okay. So, so they. What ended up happening from reports is that the final wording of the executive order was not seen by the head of. Homeland Security or the department head of the Department of Defense before it was signed. That's what they were. Uh, there was a report that Homeland Security was looking at the language, and then, and as they were looking at the language to give notes about it to the president, uh, they 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 found out that it was being signed at that moment. And I don't believe there's a single Republican member of Congress who has said that he or she was consulted on it, which is part of the potential constitutional crisis. Well, yeah, the, in the frame of constitutional crisis, question mark, right. we've got um, – there's that working together with congressional aides, although not Congress people, is one part of that. And then the other part is Customs and Border Patrol agents not agreeing to follow the judge's stay on the executive order. Shall we take those one at a time? Yeah, Go let's, over the let's... congressional aides aspect. Well, so from what I understand, um, there wasn't coordination between the president's team and any representatives or senators, but there was collaboration with um, this guy, Representative Goodlatte. I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. Uh, his aides, and it's not clear whether exactly how much that collaboration, what form it took. Some reports have said they signed non-disclosure agreements before they sat down to work on this executive order. But it's odd for congressional staffers to work with the president's team in drafting an executive order. It's just odd, especially if they were to sign NDAs. That's where the separation of powers question gets into it. Because well, I, think, I, think it's, I think it's actually beyond odd. I think it's pretty much unheard of. It's very odd. I mean, and this, you know, yeah. And just to be clear, this happened while he wasn't president yet. He was president-elect during when they. The timeline of this is when he was president-elect. But even you know, there's nothing wrong with the executive branch working with the legislative branch. Obviously, that happens all the time. Um, but it it needs to happen on on some reasonable above-board level. Um, I mean, if, if you even take this out of the politics realm, you know, if you are running a business. And one of your employees starts working with, uh, I guess the analogy here would almost be a competitor, and doesn't tell you about it, you would probably fire them. And in this case, it's worse than that, 
because you have the executive branch and the legislative branch, which are, are supposed to be checks against each other in our constitutional system, and you had the executive branch poaching work from the legislative branch and then making them sign non-disclosure agreements to not tell their bo bosses about it, which was totally blurring the lines between the branches and you know violating our checks and balances system. And what's what's astounding about this, and I think is not talked about sometimes, is that he's doing this. The president, the president is doing this at a time when the Republicans, which he supposedly is, also control Congress. So he was going behind the backs of his own party's aides. So it's it's a level of suspicion. Like in theory, it should be plausible that he could go to Congress, that is Repu a Republican Congress, and say, "I want to have this legislation that increases vetting for particular countries for security reasons," and that they Congress would then work to craft a bill to make this a law. And but it, most of them probably would have agreed to it. Most of them probably would have agreed to it. But to go behind their backs and distrust your own party that way is frightening a little bit because I, it's not because they're, you know, Republicans that he doesn't trust them. I think it's because they're congressmen he doesn't trust them. Like, he used the aides because the aides were related to the judiciary community, I believe, and they had knowledge about immigration policy and they wanted to have some of the language right and some of the potential flaws thought through. And so they went through these aides because of their, their knowledge and expertise. But he doesn't ultimately trust members of Congress within his own party, in part because they would, you know, curtail his power on any level. Like, he'd have to cut some level well, of deal on the with simplest them level, a, a few years ago when asked about Congress, he said, and I quote, everyone in Congress is an idiot. Mm -hmm. Fact check on that, that's actually true. And we, would, <laughs> we might agree with the president on this, but in theory, the president would want to work with Congress to create laws. I mean, we could, we could use parallel examples in past presidents to show that's pretty well, much and there, the same. There are major questions about, with, particularly with the NDA, regarding the fact you know, that it is required under federal law that the president keep records of you know, all paperwork and communications and you know, non-disclosure agreements are run kind of yeah, contrary we, to that. We have federal whistleblower statutes, I believe, where people in government are required to reveal information if they think something is against the interests of the country. And so to, an NDA would run contrary to what we want out of our government, which is both openness and transparency and a willingness to advocate not for personal interest, but for the interest of the good of the nation. And there have been a lot of rumors um, swirling, and I, I'll, I'll caution that these are just rumors. I mean, they're not that salacious, but um, th that, you know, in meetings in the Oval Office and among uh, high-ranking staff members in the White House that very few notes are being taken during meetings. Orders are being given verbally. There's just a culture of non-transparency and paranoia about writing anything down, let alone putting it in electronic form, which I, I suppose is there to provide plausible deniability and lack of evidence for, yeah. for whatever. Well, they learned a, a valuable lesson from Nixon, I guess. None of this is new for Trump either. He loves making people sign non-disclosure agreements. That's true. Yeah, he everyone loves, you know, shadowy well, organizations yeah. with no traceable paperwork. So that's so they that's the crafting of this uh, executive order, EO, as it's often. So then on Saturday and the congressional aides. So on Saturday, we, um, you know, America reacted very strongly against the executive order, as Mike was saying before there was protests at JFK, there was protests at pretty much every major airport all, all over the around country. the country. Uh, Dulles, 
Um, I, I went to one in LAX. There was ones in Philadelphia. There's ones in Seattle. There's ones in San Francisco. Um, Certainly protests in, in front of the White House itself. Protests in front of the White House itself. Protests in front of immigration uh, office buildings uh, around the country. Yeah. So that had lasted through through the weekend. It was also the executive order landed on, on uh, n- was it National Holocaust M- M- Remembrance Day? Day? Yes. Yeah. Um, and the the president put out the traditional statement. Yeah. Remembering the Holocaust and for the first time, I believe, ever, did not use the word Jew or Jewish in the statement. Yeah, he all lives mattered, that statement. So yeah. what, what is, like, th- there was obviously a resonant irony to putting this policy out on that day because this policy, the executive order, feels very much like the beginnings of trying to create an exclusionary uh, legal status around Muslims. Absolutely. Yeah. And what then that usually leads to what? I mean, I think for the four of us, we're probably all in agreement about what that historically has led to. Well, I mean, you would think it, it, it leads down the path towards ethnic cleansing and, um, yeah. and all sorts of unmentionable. It, it, well, and that's the protest. Yeah. There were a lot of signs at the protests that, yeah. to that end where they were like, first, you know, you saw first they came for the Muslims and we said, not today. Motherfucker. Motherfucker. Yeah. Yeah. Call and response. Or never again, a lot of never agains. Yeah. So I feel like people are aware of that historical parallel and they're... Oh, I, I think people are very aware, which is obviously extremely important. Now, in the in the crafting of this EO, um, like there's been some... Dis- there's the, pre- the Office of the Presidency disputes that this is a, a focus on Muslims, even though it's a focus on Muslims and, and Muslim-dominant countries. Um, and, and, and even though Rudy Giuliani went on television on Saturday morning and said that he had been consulted on how to craft a legal Muslim ban. And what, and what was his answer to how did he figure... What was the trick that he figured out in order to make that work for him? I didn't actually watch the video. Oh, you didn't watch the video? So Giuliani... <laughs> um, I highly recommend watching the video. Giuliani said that it was like he was asked to create a Muslim ban. He uses those words, and then he's like, the, you know, realizing that he couldn't do that. So he reasons shouldn't make it about religion. It's danger. That's what he says. You focus on danger. But he basically admits to the fact that it's a... It's shifting a notion of religion to a focus on danger and the notion of security that the Muslim ban is supposed to address, that there are dangerous individuals coming from these seven countries and we have to be careful about letting them in for the fact that they might create crimes in the future. I mean, it's like a dumb version of Minority Report. They're basing the, the, the aspect of danger on the religion of the individuals. So it's a religious test. They they actually were, by all reports, performing religious tests already in the wake of the EO. That they were asking individuals who came in um, what religion, like essentially trying to assess out whether they were Muslims from those countries or Christians or Jews from those countries as part of some basis. Although well, the executive a, order, while it did not specifically technically say anything about Muslims, mm-hmm. there is a line about developing preferential treatment for immigrants from those countries who are being religiously persecuted, i.e. Christians. Well, it described it as minority faiths that, that or minority religious religions. So that would include a few religions because in, in, in Iran, there's, there's a, you know, it's still a population of Iranian Jews and a lot of Iranian a small Jews one. In, in the U.S. who go and visit their relatives in Iran. Um, living in Los Angeles, 
like Los Angeles is full of Iranian Jews who fled uh, when the Shah fell. Um, so th you there can is watch that their adventures on Shaws of Sunset. Yes, you can watch their adventures on Shaws of Sunset. Uh, they have a guy with a Freddie Mercury mustache. It's really yes. cool. Um, and, and and uh, and Trump actually went on like the Christian Broadcast Network, I believe, is that the name of it, um, and said, "Ben, did you watch that video?" I read about it, but I didn't. Uh, I didn't watch it. So why don't you go ahead and? He basically just admitted to that that there would be preference for Christian re refugees and Christians well, individual. And, from this and this is something that he's talked about since his campaigning started. Mm -hmm. You know that that Christians in these countries were being persecuted, and that we needed to specifically help them. And, and, and there's refugees been a lot of, of a sort. Yes, you might there's, call there's, them. There's a false. There's a bunch of false statistics or falsely used statistics around that. I sometimes occasionally engage on Twitter the uh, right-wing sides, or at least scroll through it. And there's a, there's a factual thing about during uh, the last year of the refugees from Syria, less than 1% were of the Christian faith, although the population of Syria before the war was 10% Christian. But the majority of refugees from 2007 to 2015 were Christian. Christians were the, the largest percentage of refugees made up for that 10-year, uh, 2000. Almost yeah, 10 years. Almost 10-year period. And the last time was 2006, in the middle of the Iraq War, where Muslims uh, were outnumbered. And in 2016, there is about 2,000 more Muslim refugees let in than Christian refugees. So in addition to ordinary American citizens, other groups were rather concerned about this executive order, among them the ACLU and other, other similar advocacy groups. And they sprang into action extremely quickly and filed lawsuits, asked for injunctions, and pretty quickly um, there were a number of injunctions filed at the federal level. The, where was the first one? Brooklyn. Uh, that was in Brooklyn, and then the second one was Boston, Yeah, which was probably the strong, most strongly worded, worded one yeah. of the, uh, f I believe there were five total over the weekend, um, which placed stays uh, of different lengths on differing portions, but uh, pr pretty much said that at least temporarily it was not legal to enforce this executive order, uh, particularly focusing on the rights of uh, green card holders and those with valid visas. And, and, just, and all of them really pointed out that the order was very poorly worded and the rollout in regards to the implementation by the um, Customs and Border Patrol and ICE was uh, seemed poor, to put it mildly, and that there needed to be time to uh, potentially work out appropriate language and appropriate uh, enforcement. And, and so it was ordered that everyone who was being detained be allowed access to a lawyer and, in some cases, immediate release into the country. Uh, does someone want to pick up what happened at that point? Well, yeah, I mean, it, that, if we're doing constitutional crisis, I feel like that was the one where when a stay is issued, that means that the executive branch has to follow the opinion of the judiciary, and Customs and Border Patrol is part of the executive, and they didn't in some cases, and that's very problematic because if they're if we're having a situation of personal loyalty to the president trumping 
loyalty to the Constitution and to the way the government is set up to work, that is a dev- that's a constitutional crisis with a period at the end of it. Yeah, I mean, I think throughout our entire history as a country, with the exception of the Civil War, there has always been our respect for the judiciary and their ability to adjudicate the legal questions of this nature. And when they've done so, that has been followed by, by all parties. Not always happily, but, but it has been. Yeah, if they had yeah. Oh, they had an issue you would they would take it to the court. So so part of what that why it was framed as executive versus judicial after the stays happened Custom agents reportedly from the beginning were saying when, when individuals were coming into the United States from one of the, with passports from one of these seven countries or nationality links to one of these seven countries, which included dual citizens, that they, some were told, like, if you have any questions, you should take it up with President Trump. Some were, uh, by report, told to sign documents that would have revoked their visa or green card status. Some they uh, reports were that they actually managed to convince them to voluntarily give up their green cards. Yeah, so so after the judges' verdicts, the, the first one from Brooklyn came out on Saturday night. I believe the others, I don't know when they came. By the time I woke up uh, Sunday morning, they were five, there were five reports by then or five uh, uh, judicial opinions by then that the executive branch said that they wanted custom agents to continue with their policy. So that put those custom agents in a position of either following the order of the presidency or listening who is their to, boss who or listening to this legal opinion which is or by the judges which is how the separation of powers would technically work which is pretty scary it's terrible and we had representatives who were at like members of congress who were at airports asking to be told what was going on and the CBP either would not tell them or, or would say, would sort of use um, sidestepping. They would say, you know, they're, they're not technically detained. They were, they were just in handcuffs for their own comfort. Well, you know, various techniques to try to sidestep the issue and to continue enforcing this executive order whose legality is, is unsettled, undetermined. Yeah. That's they nice would pro- they, they provide yeah. no information about who was, how many people were detained in these facilities. Like the only way is when someone was released, they would say who was there. They didn't provide information about the names of the individuals detained or information about who they were. Like many who were released were, were elderly people. There is a f- often like a, f- a, like a five year old kid. There's a five year old kid, which is like heart wrenching. Well, and it was it was thrown very much into relief because the the very first two people who were detained were uh, Iraqi citizens who had worked with the U.S. military for over 10 years as military translators, you know, literally putting their own lives and their families' lives because translators in Iraq and Afghanistan were often seen as collaborators and their families could be targeted. That They had put their lives and their families' lives on the line for the United States for a very long time in return for the promise of relocation to the United States. And the order right. comes down while welcome they're on an airplane, to the US. right? And their welcome is uh, being detained and handcuffed, and yeah. um, and so on. I mean, the administration you know, really couldn't have picked a worse two first people to get. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not good uh, optics. Um, and they were they were people who had been those were Iraqi translators who had been living in the U.S. for for some time. They weren't just or were often joining family. I mean, we yeah. there were there were people who had green cards who were you know a day or two away from becoming citizens. 
and 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 let's be clear about green card holders. American green card holders are some of the most heavily scrutinized, you know, extremely vetted, if you will, people who walk on American soil. I mean, they're they're, they're far more scrutinized than any naturally born American citizens. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, to say that there would be security concerns about them is is really pretty ludicrous. Mm-hmm. Well, and this gets back to, I can't believe that they didn't do it this way on purpose. Like you were talking earlier, oh. they appear not to have consulted with any of the relevant departments. To the extent that they did, what I gather is that the Department of Homeland Security said, well, you can't apply this to green card holders. And then certain people in the executive were just like, you know what, let's just go ahead and apply it to green card holders anyway. So, you know, that this is being done by someone who pushes himself as a businessman, someone who runs very complicated operations on a day-to-day basis in his other companies, that he would then, like, try to do something as obviously complicated as this without running it by any of the appropriate people is unthinkable that that would, like, he knows, he knows. He ran on his on his competence as a businessman being superior to that of the politicians in Washington. Yeah. Well, I mean, so he's not a great businessman, but I think the message here is like, like his contempt and disdain for process is part of the message of, of the, of the, they don't, they don't care about chaos. Like the fact that it engendered chaos, they wrote, they would wash that away by saying that it worked at all levels. Like there was these insanely ridiculous quotes. I mean, uh, Trump does care about media coverage that, (laughs) that part cares about media spin. That's that's what he cares about, and he tried to spin it as if it was it was functional when it was a highly dysfunctional process. They lied about the amount of people that were being affected. They say it was 109 when it was at least over 700 people. They said it was only people who flew Delta at one point. Like, well, Trump yes. Trump said that the chaos at the airports was due to Delta because Delta had a um, a six hour computer outage, um, and right. uh, it, it did ground their flights for a yes. while. Um, and and those Delta flyers were told that this is the Delta lounge in which to wait and it was actually an, an ICE holding pen. Or, or a con- <laughs> yeah. Is that, is that, that's how it worked in his mind, right? In his uh, mind, yes. That, that, that did not actually happen for the record. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it's continuing from this uh, into Monday. So that would, be, that would be Monday night when the, the acting Attorney General of the United States who it was a holdover from, from the Obama administration and who had specifically been asked to stay on by the Trump administration until a new attorney general could be appointed, wrote a letter instructing the Department of Justice to not defend the executive order in court or any other venue because she had both significant moral questions about it and also significant legal questions, particularly in light of the judicial branch of the government putting putting stays on on its implementation. Yeah, she just said that she didn't, she advised to the attorneys in the AG's office in the Department of Justice to not defend it because she didn't think there was legal grounds in which she knew how to defend this. And within almost literally minutes, she was fired. And that technically is within the president's rights. You know, it's not a lot of comparisons are being made to the uh, the Saturday Night Massacre under Nixon when he fired the Attorney General and Deputy Attorney General for not illegally firing the special prosecutor for Watergate. Nothing here was illegal in the sense that the president certainly has the right to fire 
the Attorney General. What was extremely unusual, though, was the method that he that he chose to do it in. And I think Mike has the the letter that he publicly released uh, queued up and ready to go. Well, so this is the statement he released. He writes, The acting Attorney General, Sally Yates, has betrayed the Department of Justice by refusing to enforce a legal order designed to protect the citizens of the United States. This order was approved as to form and legality by the Department of Justice Office of Legal Counsel. Ms. Yates is an Obama administration appointee who is weak on borders and very weak on illegal immigration. It is time to get serious about protecting our country. Calling for tougher vetting for individuals traveling from seven dangerous places is not extreme. It is reasonable and necessary to protect our country. Tonight, President Trump relieved Ms. Yates of her duties. And then he goes on to introduce the uh, person that he he ins- installed in her place. But Dana, Dana, what's her name? Dana, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it's her name. He, Dana Boenti, okay. U.S. Okay. Attorney for the uh, Eastern District of Virginia. Was another Obama appointee. But the thing that's striking to me about this is is he talking about betraying the Department of Justice and then well, taking a little time to say she is weak on borders and very weak on illegal immigration. This is a career Department of Justice employee. She's been working there since the 80s. She's through been multiple confirmed. administrations. Yeah, I mean, this is... It, well, one of the things well, that's it, interesting it, is that you both of you described it as he, but... In theory, this is like a general <laughs> right. press statement from the, right. I guess, the office of the presidency. Or is it, where does it yeah. say it's from? It's, it's in, in theory, those are just written by an, like, Some, someone at the White House. It's someone a, at the White House. Yeah, release from the office of the press secretary. And, and yet, the language of the statement is is just textbook Donald Trump. I mean, it's like how he talked on The Apprentice. You could hear the cadence, the excessive verbiage. Like they say that she betrayed. I mean, she's accusing. He's a, the the letter itself accuses. Well, it's not like his tweets. Yeah, it accuses Sally Yates of treason, essentially. Yeah. Right. Well, that, that's actually an important – I actually spoke with a, a lawyer friend of mine who explained that in legal technical terms, which documents released by the White House should be taken, that the word betrayal is the civilian – the legal civilian equivalent of treason. Yeah. That's how high a charge that is. Yeah. Which is crazy. Which, which, is, the part which that... is crazy. The Trump, the Trumpiest part of it is the the press secretary's office calls her weak on borders and very weak on illegal immigration. You know, it's got that same yeah. repetitive. Well, it, yeah. Well, it's also hilarious that he, that he says that the action is not extreme. The 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 immigration order is not extreme. After you know, at at every rally for a year and a half, talking about extreme vetting over and over again. So I mean the the hypocrisy there is uh, is pretty crazy. And there and in, in a bit of sort of cosmic irony, there's a video that's made the rounds of. Uh... You're talking about when she was up for Senate confirmation for her new role in nineteen in uh, 2015. The a senator asked her if she would be willing to stand up to the president, who at that time was President Obama, if he told her to do something unlawful, and she confirmed that she would be loyal to the Constitution and would defy an unlawful order if it came to that. And that senator was Jeff Sessions, and that's the sort of special yeah, the, irony of the Jeff situation. Sessions, of course, is, that is the the nominee. For he's nominated general. to be the attorney general, and she just did the thing that she promised him she would steadfastly do, and got immediately fired for it. Uh, we spent quite a bit of time on that. That was a very important topic. But let's let's move on to some other important 
stuff as well. I, I you know, the, the the sinister person lurking in the background of all of, of this. Uh, the architect of this the, of the EO that was released, probably all the EOs from from the last week, but the EO that was at least one of the. You could really architects. refer to him as Captain EO. I think he's the architect of it. If you didn't necessarily write it, uh, Stephen Miller, I think, is who you're referring to, Ben. But the architect of the EO is this guy, Steve Bannon, who is – I liked – I was thinking in my head that it's like if you if, uh, you if leaving Las Vegas, Nick Cage was replaced with the asshole of a bulldog. That's like sort of how I imagine Steve Bannon looks like. <laughs> That's an interesting comparison. So uh, for those of you who are not completely aware, Steve Bannon um, is uh, a white supremacist neo-Nazi who until recently was the producer for Breitbart News and is now the senior advisor to the president, which is a role that was similarly held by people like David Axelrod under President Obama, which is pretty horrifying in and of itself. But as John alluded to, he and Stephen Miller, who was a policy wonk for the aforementioned Jeff Sessions until he was loaned to the, to the Trump team, have been pretty much in charge of policy and of writing these executive orders. And, and then there was another development since we last spoke regarding Bannon, which has raised a lot of eyebrows, to say the least. And that involves the National Security Council, which is the the group which advises the the president on all matters of national security, intelligence, military, and otherwise. And it's typically you would expect to find your Joint Chiefs of Staff chairperson there and your d- director of national intelligence. And uh, it's very, very unusual for a political appointee such as Bannon to be included. And it's what has happened in this case is that the Joint Chiefs and the Director of National Intelligence appear to have been made um, provisional members, like non-required. In other words, it has become possible for there to be a meeting without them. Uh, they're still allowed to attend, and Reigns Priebus has been on the Sunday shows spinning this like crazy, but, it, but Bannon is a required member, so they can't meet without Bannon now. And this is extremely strange. I think... Um, Someone on some high level, I think, let me get this right, but I believe some high level Obama appointee was on Twitter saying this is stone cold crazy. That was uh, Susan, <laughs> Susan Rice, Rice. Who was the. Yeah, this is the woman advisor. who couldn't get to be Secretary of State because the CIA gave her. Anyway, whatever. Water under the bridge. But, you know, that's a big statement for, for someone who knows what she's talking about. Right. So, um, well, yeah, I mean, I, there are permanent seats on the National Security Council. That, that since its creation, and that has always included the Joint Chief of Staff, and the the DNI was actually a pretty new position. That was that's the Director of National Intelligence that was created under President Obama, um, sort of in the wake of the intelligence failings of uh, surrounding 9/11 and the Iraq War, and the DNI is in charge of kind of collaboration and as a clearinghouse of intelligence. Is, is so it again, interagency head essentially? Right. And you would think that you would want someone like that to uh, to be there, um, but th- but their permanent seats were removed, and um, and Steve Bannon, who has no experience in any of these matters, and whose security clearance is purely given to him by virtue of being a senior advisor to the president. Well, um, he's never been confirmed by the Senate either. He yeah. he's never been elected or yeah. And to be clear, the, the president does have the discretion to allow anyone he or she wants into 
these meetings, one of the ways that uh, Ryan's Priebus has spun this is to say that David Axelrod, who I guess you could say was Steve Bannon's counterpart, um, was often in these meetings. And that, that is true, but as David Axelrod has pointed out since, um, he would sit in the back and not around the table, and he did not open his mouth once during a single NSC meeting. He was not a permanent member. He was there to give communications f- uh, he, from the, 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 in terms right. of things that he and the president he, had discussed. He and Robert Gibbs, the, the press secretary, would sometimes be there so that when they needed to communicate what had happened to the American people, they would have an understanding of what the thought process of the NSC and the president had been, but they were in no way there to advise or to participate in the discussion. Yeah, and the NSC is a purposely shady group a group of men, generally, who sit around a table and make high-level decisions about foreign policy and actions the United States government could take. It's meant to be incredibly secretive, closed door, you know, the... the the, where the decisions make on, like, you know, how to kill bin Laden. Like, the, it's a... Well, the, they, these are advisory. They don't make actual decisions. They, but, they advise yeah. the president. They advise the president, but they group together to, to figure these things out. And having someone like Bannon in this capacity means that basically the, the highest secrets the government has will go to this man, Steve Bannon, who is like, if in a movie you ever saw, like, an abusive husband hit his wife with a bottle of vodka, Steve Bannon would be that bottle of vodka. And you won't necessarily have the director of national intelligence and the highest ranking member of the U.S. military there to provide any balance or their point of view, uh, which is insane. In some some defense of it, it was put out there that this is the same – Composition of the NSC that w- that existed in two thousand and one, one of America's most auspicious years. Right. <laughs> we, we, the president got some really excellent advice in two thousand one. No, I mean it's it's terrible. This is the one that's been keeping me up at night. You know, there's been a lot of troubling news, but um, the you know the NSC is not a joke at all. They're as you were saying, they distru- they they make decisions or they make recommendations about covert operations, operations that are never disclosed. We had one of those over the weekend, which went really horribly. In Yemen, yeah. Yeah, that's an, that's an example, but I mean... Although you can't pin that exactly on them, it obviously didn't go... No, that no. had been planned previously, but it, but it is an example of the kind of thing the NSC works on. And they also, you know, are in a position... We have nuclear weapons here in the United States, that's mm-hmm. a known thing, and mm-hmm. Trump has this sort of strange fascination with them, and... The scenarios that are troubling to me is having to do with deployment of our more major military assets sure. rather than the, you know, advising people on drone strikes. The drone strikes are also a terrible thing, and that's a separate issue. But well, they're all troublesome. There are relative levels of troublesomeness, which are all high. Though. Yeah, I mean, obviously, through this executive order and the ex- and individuals in in the White House telling individual like customs agents to ignore a, a judges or multiple judges rulings this is an expansive executive and so when someone sits in the seat of power in the in the executive uh, branch and advising advising the president it's a sense that can you know ben was saying they don't necessarily make policy like we're america to go to war congress would have to approve that on some level the nsc doesn't just decide that but at the same time this is an expansive uh, executive, and so the NSC could be making decisions and putting forward decisions uh, where they sort of just push the edge of what the executive branch is allowed to do. Um, and the individual making those decisions is uh, is is in many ways Steve Bannon, who 
you know, there's a hashtag going around like President Bannon to try to make the point that, yeah. you know, there's a lot, there's rumors that it, Trump doesn't read the executive orders that are put in front of him. He just sort of signs whatever. Like Bannon and in the, to a lesser extent, this guy, Stephen Miller, seem to be the, the primary movers of executive policy. Right now. I mean, there's this image that I think is floating around left wing and probably some right wing circles as well of Steve Bannon just kind of whispering in, in President Trump's ear and and totally driving the agenda of uh, of the Oval Office. Worm tongue. Yeah, worm tongue, exactly right. And, I mean, we had today the New York Times editorial board published an editorial which, in effect, uh, accused Bannon of implementing um, a soft coup uh, within within the White House of of consolidating power and um and and really running things from from behind the scenes because this is this, um, this is an individual who was not did not run for the office of the presidency there's no public vetting of him um he was an advisor to the president who took over in the middle of the summer when paul manafort uh stepped down as a uh, senior advisor and so he's not, mostly he, to his ties to russia yeah he's not an elected official um, never has been. Never has been an elected official. Has worked for Goldman Sachs, made a bunch of money, was in Hollywood making terrible films that are have a clear right wing bias. Uh, then ended took, up took over Breitbart Bar- after Andrew Breitbart died. Yeah, and so and now he's you know, deciding policy. And there's a lot of like videos interpreting, uh, or trying to interpret his sort of worldview. He's publicly talked frequently. He's publicly talked, you know, many times about sort of Judeo-Christian values in the West in decline and defending Judeo-Christian values. Um, that he's destroying criti- the media. He's talking about destroying the media. He's talking about destroying the state and bringing it down. He's talked about how there are too many uh, f- f- Asian, Asian American, South Asian CEOs in Silicon Valley where he uh, stated a completely fabricated statistic about the percentage of that. Um, he- his ex-wife, who testified under oath in court that he beat her, um, said that he removed their children from a school because there were too many African American children mm-hmm. at the school. Yeah. Under oath, that was that was a t- testified. I mean, this is this is a really bad guy. Multiple individuals who have worked for him have testified that his character is poor. Th- those are usually deeply uh, red conservatives who ended up working for him and just describing in insinuations of his of him being abusive to employees. There's l- lots of in- individuals who've said that Bannon sexually harassed them or said inappropriate, uh, made inappropriate comments to women who worked underneath, worked with him um, in, or worked underneath him, worked for him. I mean, yeah, he is just... So, um... So, like, I think in, in talking about constitutional crisis, like Bannon's rise in power and his ability to have consolidated power within the White House is co- in some way connected to this fear of, of a constitutional crisis, right? Yeah, I mean, if, absolutely. If, if, we've made a lot of allusions to similarities to 1930s Europe and so on. So the the historian in me would say that this is not totally dissimilar to to Hitler's rise as as the chancellor of Germany when he was technically and he actually did get some votes like he was never popularly elected but he was essentially running things when president von bismarck the last weimar republic uh, president fell ill and and I uh, didn't really have the capacity to fight him so i i i certainly see some similarities there von bismarck anecdotes that's what you come to this thing for <laughs> <laughs> 
Even without necessarily... Next time I'll work in a Lusitania. Okay. Without necessarily going to that territory, although I see the resemblance you're talking about, even just the things we've talked about tonight, you know, purposely inducing chaos along, you know, in the cause of fomenting religious and ethnic division, you know, sort of disdaining with contempt the re- the other parts of the executive branch, you know, theoretically... Trump is in charge of the Department of Homeland Security, State Department, you know, the Department of Justice, and here we see that he is willfully ignoring, well, he or Bannon and Trump is the one signing it, their recommendations, and also thinking about the slow rate at which they are filling open positions in the cabinet departments, it has the effect of concentrating a lot of power in Trump and his circle of advisors, all of whom are monsters, particularly Bannon. And so the reason I get so worried about a constitutional crisis is that I kind of think they would see that as an opportunity. It it, it doesn't, it seems to me that they would like to provoke a crisis of that nature, mm-hmm. Be, yeah, you know, and, and they're I... laying the groundwork for potentially doing some pretty terrible things. And I think you could easily see the theoretically somewhat more conventional cabinet members, the the Mattises, the Kellys at Homeland Security, even uh, Ryan's Priebus, the chief of staff, you could see them being moved out very quickly. It's starting to seem pretty clear who he listens to among the, all, the various people around him. And, and it's not those guys I just listed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, no, apparently Mattis told him that torture didn't work, and we have him a couple of days later or a couple of weeks later saying that he absolutely believes torture works and that was supposedly Mattis's big selling point was that he talked Trump down from the torture thing. Well Trump has wish gone back and forth on that one. He has subsequently said that he'll even though he thinks torture works, he'll still defer to his Secretary of Defense. Not super reassured at that no, reassurance. I'm not, nor should you be. Nothing, nothing about anything he says should re- be reassuring because he's a habitual liar. I mean, right. they, they tried to say that the Muslim ban wasn't a ban. Uh, what, not even on the technical level of it not being a ban. They, they actually used the word ban in the initial statement. It's a 90-day ban is in there. And they're trying to say, like, oh, no, the media said the word ban. We're just using it off of them. I mean, they're like going to the fact that they don't agree what photographs look like. like they're... they're Reality is not is not the issue. So that none of that was reassuring, but there have been some reassuring things that have happened, and pretty much all of that centers around the response from from the left and from a ton of ordinary people. Uh, and this is something that we've already talked about in terms of the the massive and persistent protests that have taken place since Friday at airports and now at also within cities. At the, on the seat of the Supreme Court, there have been uh, protests outside of Democratic senators' offices in an effort to, to try to influence them to do the right thing uh, with regards to uh, these issues. What is the right uh, thing? Does you say that like, that's a clearly <laughs> objective statement? Uh, well, I think that probably the four of us would, would agree on, on the notion that resisting pretty much 100% Everything that is being put forward by the the current executive branch is the way to go, since there's really nothing redeemable or positive about pretty much anything that they've done or we expect 
nearly anything that they will do. I suppose there are some people who disagree with us, but they're wrong. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, the, so the part of the fear of it being a constitutional crisis is that, in many ways, the government isn't reacting that to it being a constitutional crisis. There's no Republicans in Congress, though there are Republicans in Congress who are critical of Trump about certain decisions, cozying up to Russia, this this ban from the executive order on Friday. Yeah. There's some some who are critical. No one is sort of vote either like the only person who's voted against any of the nominees was Rand Paul and no one has made any point to indicate that this is a slide of of yanking power from a shared three branches system to the executive branch and, and it, which in, in some ways it's almost more shocking that that the republican members of congress are so craven and cowardly that not a single one of them can summon the balls to state the obvious, which is that this is all terrible and and awful and show some loyalty to country before party. I mean, I'm not shocked by that. I don't know why. I'm not even a little bit surprised uh, by that. Why are you shocked? I'm not surprised, but I am shocked. Why are you shocked? What what makes that shocking? Simply because it's so terrible. Because the... Well, I mean, at at the least cynical... Their party has the presidency, and they're getting the policies that they've been telling us they wanted for a dozen years. It's it's really not that surprising. And then, uh, at, if you want to be more cynical about it, um, they're just hanging out and waiting until they get their policy passed. And once that happens, then they can criticize. Well, I I also imagine that a certain number of them are just straight up afraid of uh, of Trump. I mean, I think yeah, it's, yeah. it's three things. They're hoping mm-hmm. they can ride the tiger long enough to get their policies, and they are terrified of his extremely zealous base that he can tweet at. I don't think there's any senator or representative who wants Trump to be like, you know, this representative is a total loser, sad, because then they'll be just a Trump rain is a vengeful of, guy. Yeah. Bernie but wants other, it. This goes back to Reagan, too. The, the rule that, you know, never... Republicans look out for Republicans, right? Never go against anyone in the party. What's that guy's name? The Hastert rule about yep. the mm-hmm. the Republicans would not bring a bill up to up for a vote unless a majority of Republicans supported it. So it was sort of like a little pre-filter for laws. This goes back decades. So, so it's a loyalty a, to their own rule, party. A rule named after known pedophile Denny Hassert. Well, he, they didn't know him that he was a pedophile when they named yeah. the rule. I after. mean, they, I don't know to what they fair, did, but yeah. yes, to that guy. <laughs> okay. All right. So, uh, but to get back to things that were reassuring and not uh, awful. Um, a lot of money is pouring into organizations like the ACLU, the Southern Defense Fund. Who and, really uh, did a great job. I mean, yeah, Southern Poverty Law Center. The Southern Poverty was... Law Center. <laughs> did you see the Southern Defense Fund? That's a yes, different that, – the that Confederate is, Army. They're going – yeah. okay, right. <laughs> yes. I mean, they might be doing a lot of fundraising, but <laughs> – We might want to get that one and edit. No, I like – I want to keep that. <laughs> Okay. Southern Defense. I'm going to put that at the beginning. Spawn brought okay. to you by the Southern Defense Fund. <laughs> Give your money to the Southern Defense Fund. Everyone and their mother has been calling their members of Congress. Well, hopefully, like, this feels like the section is like our ways we're trying to stay sane. Yeah, and so yeah. I think that I mean, so and it has also engendered a little bit of effect on 
the actual democratic politicians. Well, that's what's making me stay sane. Yeah, not a little bit of effect. The thing, Ben, you're talking about how rat, like, like the what did the Democrats do today? They they sat out on a he denied quorum for. Yes. Mnuchin and Price. They they just didn't go to the meeting. They, they did not show up and for And so the they vote. couldn't be voted out of committee because the l- rules require at least one Democrat to be present. Yeah. They yeah. have they have officially declared that they will be a full party blockade against DeVos, mm-hmm. the yeah. Secretary of Education nominee. Uh, may not have any effect, but... Uh, They're looking for three votes, one of which is, uh, I think, Susan Collins in Maine. I call her all the time to to try to give her my uh, suggestions. Um, they managed but, to push push back the committee vote on yeah. Jeff Sessions for attorney general. That was supposed to happen today. Who who has publicly been linked to the policies of last week as as an early advisory architect to an, a shock and awe approach to these executive orders, which is basically what they approved. Well, not did. to mention that, as we discussed before, one of the literal authors of these executive orders is Stephen Miller, who was uh, Jeff Sessions' main policy guy uh, until he he wrote he, he wrote a lot of the policies or speeches that Sessions gave in in the last few years when he was working under Sessions and was principal in bringing down uh, immigration reform under Obama a couple of years and, ago. And let's rem- remember that Jeff Sessions was denied a federal judgeship because of his his history of racism, connections to the KKK. Coretta Scott King wrote a letter about yeah. how he shouldn't be allowed to be a t- like a federal judge. What That's, year what year was that? It was in the 80s. That was in the early time. 1980s. Yeah, the early 1980s when racism was something we acted about. Yeah, I mean one w- one concrete example I think of where the the outrage from the left has affected things is in California where bizarrely Diane Feinstein, the long long-time senator for Cal- from California had been publicly flirting with the idea of voting yes on Jeff Sessions. And she today really changed her tune on that and and said that she had no confidence in him to, to do the right thing when it came to enforcing the Constitution rather than just listening to his boss. And the Sally Yates dismissal makes that very, very clear. That the, the, what, who is in charge of the Attorney General's office under Trump um, will be... Is Trump. <laughs> Is Trump, but will be. I mean, I think actually Sessions is more Trump than Trump is. Like he's making more of the decisions, really. But will be instrumental in coming up with legalistic. I mean, quasi legalistic arguments on behalf of policies that are clearly in violation of the Constitution, um, like a first-year law school student could see. It'll be no, the I, Department I think... of Justifying. Right. Ooh, oh, yeah. rim oh, shot. <laughs> oh, man. Some, I, I someone, in... Andy Borowitz better watch out. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> the meanest that's, thing that's anyone assault. could say. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I think in a lot of ways the firing of Sally Yates was actually pretty beneficial to, to our cause in the sense that it, it sort of provided a face and kind of, you know, you, I don't want to use the word hero, but... Martyr. Like, She's been described as a martyr. Yeah, by both uh, sides. It, 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 it knew really... she was going to lose her job. I mean, she she well, definitely she had the decision to. to stand up for her principles. It was legally the correct decision. They were they didn't just put a policy in re-examining vetting for future visas and for future refugees. Well, and she was only going to be in the job for a couple more days anyway, and most likely. Well, um, hopefully not, because hopefully yeah. they can block sessions for longer than a couple more days. But true, and get sessions gone. But it it made the whole situation there less abstract and theoretical and 
much easier to see and talk about for a lot of people, I think. Because it wasn't just Sally Yates who was fired on Monday night. It was also the head of the ICE, the immigration... Uh, that's the head of Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Okay. And it's unclear... That, 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 came, that was reported about an hour after the Sally Yates firing, and it's unclear exactly what the deal is there. The press release there was you know, a sentence or two and was not inflammatory. And it's unclear whether or not this was something in the works um, or if it was also related. It's a little bit odd that you would be firing someone at 11 o'clock at night. It feels like they were firing one, why not fire another? Like, get him, right. get him done. And he was certainly replaced with, with someone who appears to be a um, very much in line with the Trump-Bannon sessions take on on immigration enforcement uh, in in his own biography the of the new head of the ice touts how many people he has deported that's like one of his great achievements um, so i think there's been a series of events that have concretized what's so bad and it feels, sort of feels like what i knew what i feel like i've known for a long time democratic politicians are starting to get from this whole as you're saying you know this guy gets this guy gets fired this woman gets fired this disastrous executive order just gets dropped on the world on a Friday night and then they leave town. The Democrats are finally understanding, and these huge protests are saying, you know, we're demonstrating where we want the Democratic Party to go, and they seem to be going. There are a, lo- there are a lot of people paying attention who are extremely unhappy and extremely dedicated to not allowing our country to be destroyed. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have, a, you know, we're not going to sp- spend any significant time on this today but um, just as we were starting to record president trump announced his uh his bachelor-esque announcement of uh, his scotus nominee neil gorsuch so we don't we can maybe leave his bio for next time Um, but that will that will certainly be the next fight to be added to the list and it's very interesting to see how the democrats decide to strategize about that, whether or not they go into full obstruction or, or, or uh, choose... All America, Garland. Right. I hope they uh, show yeah. exactly the same deference to Trump's selection as the Republicans did to Obama's selection. So, yeah, I mean, and, and some some are have already said that. Jeff Merkley, the senator from Oregon... Mm-hmm. Who's, who's has, voted three, against three appointments already yeah, for Trump, has been pretty uh, outspoken. Has, has said that he will... He, he would filibuster any... Supreme Court nominee from from Trump, uh, no matter what. Um, so uh, there will be I'll, opposition. There will be large so, opposition. So the Democrats, the Democrats showing some backbone has given us heart. I think it's also given the, the world heart. I mean, the one thing I think we, we didn't touch on is that the executive order uh, banning Muslims has basically had widespread condemnation across the globe. It is deeply unpopular with a lot of our allies. I, I think um, my, my favorite was the African Union. Mm-hmm. Which which said that you enslaved us, but yeah, now you now you won't let, like let us uh, immigrate. Yeah. There there was a petition signed in England to deny Trump a visit, a, a scheduled visit with uh, the the Queen, and uh, there was a petition signed by people in England, uh, in Britain. A lot of people. A lot of people. Um, but uh, yeah, I watched a in my mind like a, a an an awesome. Uh, debate that was on the, in Parliament in the British Parliament, um, 
where Boris Johnson, who came out publicly saying that he's against the executive order, that this treatment of Muslims is not in keeping with British values, um, Boris Johnson being a, you know, a, a, one of the guys who was in favor of Brexit, really pushed that forward by having this stupid bus with a dumb ad drive around everywhere, um, is a total... Trump has previously been a big fan yeah, of Boris he's Johnson. A, he's a, yeah, Boris Johnson is like a, a children of the corn looking twit i mean it's he's he's a he's a he's not the best i i guess i love insulting people's appearances but he was basically taking verbal volleys from multiple members of parliament who were talking about having to stand up to trump in a way to stand up to fascism encroaching across the globe um so there is a sense that how this how this administration is being looked at around the world is one of like very high potential danger right after the the muslim ban came down on friday and in the aftermath there was a, a horrible terrorist attack in quebec city where a young Quebecois man um who was a sort of a white nationalist white supremacist online a misogynist online and you know an avowed fan of donald trump according to facebook um mur- murdered uh i think five or six muslims six, i think Six Muslim men um, at a mosque in Quebec City towards the end of their prayer, and Fox News portrayed it as being uh, in the after in immediate of that there was a a man of Moroccan descent who was arrested or was brought in for custody. It turned out he was a witness and had actually called the police, um, had ran away when he saw the police, thinking the gunman had come back. But Fox News talked about it as like this was an attack perpetrated by a Muslim, and that that is. Uh, that new star- story was still up on their Twitter um, of a few that hours ago. Yeah, and uh, and Sean Spicer used that attack to justify the ban, even though the ban obviously would not have prevented a Quebecois man from entering a Canadian the United States. From, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it was actually a white a, you know a, a white man committing violence against um, peaceful Muslims. Yeah. Yeah. So, and in the wake of that, people in the EU uh, were worried about America basically becoming a, a, a new threat um, along the lines of Russia and China, perhaps along the lines really of just Russia, and if we end up forming a cohesive unit. While this has all been going on, a thing that is totally overlooked internationally is that Russia has renewed its incursion of Ukraine, shelling parts of eastern Ukraine uh, constantly. So I think in the level of like for me keeping sane, I would say um, seeing the world and seeing so many Americans respond against this with a, such a loud voice and such a clear intent. It's about I mean really this battle is coming down to what is America's values. Like are we a white nationalist country at its core, which it seems to be very hard to do, run as an as an economy. Like most of the most vital economic engines of the United States are based in like highly diverse urban locations and and the re- the real answer to that question is no we are not the real answer to that yeah. question well i i wouldn't say that's the real the real answer to the question is that what we want to believe i'm scared about the soul of our country and so i need to see more people willing to give voice that this is not who we are as a nation and and make a demand and be willing to show that that we will fight together um peacefully but um committedly and one of I have to say one of the things I found very heartening was at the at the immigration march on Sunday in New York I went and it was sort of at, at the very beginning when I when I arrived a little bit late 90% white people protesting very hard for supporting New York as an immigrant population and the US as an immigrant nation and as as we sort of 
marched on, the crowd became much more mixed and everybody was marching peacefully and, and protesting together. It was I, tens of thousands of good. people. It was great. Yeah, I mean, I think on that note, um, I hope if you find our opinions similar to your opinions, understand that we are in this struggle together till the end. Yeah. I want to throw in one more Bannon description. It's like um, it's like if halitosis like stretched a Michael Myers mask over itself as it went to its divorce proceeding. That's Bannon. <laughs> wow, that's very descriptive. Yeah. Um, <laughs> thank you. Do you want to go out on that letter that we gave sort of like a hopeful note? So just to indicate that um, Donald Trump has not evolved much as a, as a man, he once owned a football team in the now defunct USFL, which was a competitor to the NFL during the uh, early and mid-1980s. He was not well-liked among his fellow owners, um, largely for the same reasons that we don't, we don't like him now in terms of his imperiousness and inability to, to think that he was possibly incorrect about anything. And it culminated in a really glorious letter that was sent to him by one of his uh, fellow owners. This is a letter from 1984. Dear Donald, on a number of occasions over the past meetings, I have listened with astonishment at your personal abuse of the commissioner and various of your partners if they did not happen to espouse one of your causes or agree with one of your arguments. It is obvious from the record that you are a talented and successful young man. It is also a fact that I regard you as a friend and an owner who has made a contribution to the League in general and been a savior to New York, New Jersey in particular. While others may be able to let your insensitive and denigrating comments pass, I no longer will. You are bigger, younger, and stronger than I, which means I'll have no regrets whatsoever punching you right in the mouth the next time an instance occurs where you personally scorn me or anyone else who does not happen to salute and dance to your tune. I really hope you don't know that you are doing it, but you are not only damaging yourself with your associates, but alienating them as well. Think before you shoot, and when you do fire, stick to the message without killing the messenger. Kindest personal regards, John F. Bassett. And on that note, uh, we will see you next week. Uh, and I'm sure some more crazy shit will have happened by then. Um, and in the meantime, keep resisting.